This morning, if you will, turn to Luke chapter 24. Just one week ago, we arrived back home from Nigeria, and I want to um, preach this morning on the global task of missions in the local church. And we will get back next week to Ecclesiastes. This Wednesday night, we will have a full presentation from our recent uh, travels. And I hope you can be here for that. (laughs) This morning, I want to focus on one portion of our mission statement as a church, and that is sending and being sent. We're going to look at several passages this morning. This is not an exposition of any specific text per se. We're going to look at what the Lord has told us concerning the task of global missions in the local church. Our key words for our worshipers in training are mission, send, and go. Now, the elders here at Ephesus, we desire to see us more and more engaged in the task of global evangelization. Uh, There are several ways that we can see that happen. There are several things we are already involved in, have been involved in as we move more and more toward that. Obviously, we have missionaries in our association that we support and pray for, and we want to be diligent to continue to do that. Uh, If you remember last year, my wife and I traveled to Haiti after... Uh, the earthquake there, by your support. That is the type of work we want to be able to engage in regularly. And beginning last September, we began what we hope to be a continual uh, return to the country of Nigeria in West Africa through health education literacy providers of West Africa. And we believe this, for the time being, is the best way that we as a local church can use what God has given us in order to be engaged in global missions on a regular basis, at least to get us going. There are many ways through this, uh, this particular mission that we're able to use a wide variety of gifts and skills that all of you possess uh, be it through your, uh, through your regular work, the job that you have, and the skills that you utilize in those are a tremendous way to be able to serve the global task. This is not something that is simply for those who uh, are preaching and teaching and, um, and feel as though they are gifted in evangelism. This is for uh, various gifts that can be used to serve the greater cause of seeing the gospel advanced in this region. Uh, We serve specifically to an orphanage, currently 29 boys, and they're working to uh, start an orphanage for girls. Uh, There's a hospital uh, for all medical personnel that are desperately needed there to serve in. An HIV-AIDS clinic serving those who are considered taboo in their culture. Uh, There's a school to teach. uh, Young children who otherwise have no opportunity to learn. Uh, We've begun a sports ministry. 
I'm assuming on Wednesday you'll see a hilarious video of me getting rocked on the football field. It wasn't my greatest moment. <laughs> um, there is bush camp evangelism going out into the African bush and evangelizing those who have typically never seen people who look quite like us. Uh, we've seen engineers go and work on building dams and providing water and resources uh, using the natural environment. Microfinance program for accountants, helping local people to start businesses and to do so wisely, how to manage their money. And then, of course, uh, what I was engaged in, the training of pastors and missionaries and simply preaching at churches that have been planted. These are only a few things that we see going on in a specific region in West Africa that we have decided to devote ourselves to. There are many more things that can and will happen, Lord willing, as we continue to return. All of this comes from specific convictions that we have as a local church. First and foremost is that we believe short-term missions matter. It matters and it is important that we engage ourselves not only in sending people for the long term to do missions, but also that short-term missions matter. Why? Well, they help in many ways to advance those existing missions and uh, to, uh, to assist missionaries that are currently serving. How do we help the mission? We go, we provide, we serve, we utilize our skills to help those who are doing this day in and day out. It may be a week or two weeks for us. They're in the middle of it every single day, and we want to be a blessing to them and to help them with what God has blessed us with. We believe that this is most effective when we're adopting a specific region, a specific mission, and we're not simply hopping around to various places and we sort of go here and go there and we never build relationships, we never build an ongoing uh, mission. We want to be able to continue to target and go to the same place time and again that we adopt a people and serve them as opposed to um, hopping around the world. Short-term missions are a means that God uses to cultivate a missionary zeal, a missionary desire. As we pray for new laborers, as we pray for those God would raise up to give themselves fully and completely to the global missionary task, uh, many times people um, begin to cultivate that desire when they are engaged themselves, first and foremost, in short-term missions. So we want to see that happening. Another conviction is that we want to be proactive in shaping global culture. We want to see globally the gospel transforming the lives of people we come in contact with. But that also means in turn we're transforming industry and governments and institutions. And there's always talk about how we, uh, how we see the end of corruption and starvation and all of these things in various places around the world. The answer is the gospel. How do we see corruption end? How do we see starvation end? It is seeing lives transformed by the gospel and those who are transformed by the gospel proactively serving those they live amongst. And so we want to see that happen, and we can do that as we are proactive in the global task. Now, missions happens in four ways. 
We've talked about all of these, and I will just mention them briefly. First and foremost, mission happens daily in all of our lives as we live gospel-centered lives in our community. As we are around our neighbors, as we are communicating with coworkers, those we do hobbies with, all of this is a working out of God's mission that we are engaging people with the gospel through the lives that we live, the words that we proclaim. Missions happens domestically in church planting, putting new churches to proclaim the truth. Time and time again, we see the church in general grows most rapidly when new churches are being planted, even in the south. And so we want to be engaged in church planting. That is a mission of the church. Then, of course, long-term global missions. And I think when we talk about missions, we are most often thinking this way, that there are those within the church that God raises up and sends out those who give their lives to the long-term task of global missions. They immerse themselves in a culture and they give themselves to that, saying goodbye to friends and family and living long-term on the mission field. And of course, there is also related to that what we call frontier missions. Those who go to places where the gospel has never yet been proclaimed. And we need much more of this. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So these four elements that define missions are daily gospel-centered lives, church planning domestically, long-term global missions, and frontier missions. All of this defines almost entirely the mission statement of Ephesus Church. Ephesus Church is a family of faith. We exist to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, that's mission, to see transformed lives, that's mission, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel. And all this happens through Jesus Christ. It's intentional that our mission statement is focused around what we believe is at the heart of what God is calling every local church to be. This is our purpose because God's mission through his people is that the gospel is proclaimed in all the earth. And so we want to continue to move away from mission or missions as an event or an activity to being something that is our calling, our obligation, and in every way a way of life. It's not simply something we do as a program or a sector of the local church. It is what we are as a local church, engaged in missions. So we're going to look at several passages. First, it's important that we see from the Scripture what our global task is. I am convinced from the Bible that the local church has a binding obligation to be involved in global missions because of our covenant relationship with God. So we're going to begin in Luke chapter 24. In Luke 24, the risen Lord Jesus, after he's been resurrected from the dead, he is appearing to his disciples for 40 days prior to his ascension. So Luke records the words of the Lord Jesus explaining to the disciples the main point, the central aim and focus of all the Old Testament scriptures. And he does this in summary form, beginning in verse 44, Luke 24, 44. 
Then he said to them, now remember, Jesus is present with the disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is all of the Old Testament. He says, all of the Old Testament speaks of me, and all of this must be fulfilled. Well, what? What is all of that? He summarizes that for us in verses 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So, we see the two things that must be fulfilled. Verse 46, Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And I think we often assume this, obviously. This must be fulfilled in order to complete what the, New Test- uh, the, excuse me, the Old Testament has proclaimed. But I think the second part is one that we often do not pay much attention to. That is in verse 47, that the gospel is to be proclaimed to all nations. And then the end will come. And so as you read through the Old Testament, you notice a few things are constantly repeated. Two things specifically that I want to point out this morning. The first is the day of glory. The day of glory. That is the day of the coming of Christ. Christ's return when he gathers all the elect and the resurrection of the believers in Christ happens alongside the final judgment and condemnation of all the non-elect in hell forever. So the question often is asked, when will this be? How will we know when this is? Well, of course, we know from the scriptures that we do not know exactly when this will be. But it may raise a few eyebrows to say we can be certain that it won't be tomorrow. Why? Why can we be certain that Christ will not return tomorrow? Well, because the task that he has outlined is not complete. What did Jesus say will happen, absolutely will happen in verses 46 and 47? First, Jesus would accomplish redemption. Life, death, burial, resurrection. Has that happened? Yes. Jesus also said the gospel would be proclaimed to all nations. Has that happened? Absolutely not. We have a long ways to go. We see this in Matthew 24, 14. Jesus told the disciples the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We see it in the Old Testament. Isaiah 66, 18 and 19, describes that Christ will die, then the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. So this twofold task is present all throughout the Bible. We see it time and again. So when will the day of glory be that the Old Testament so frequently speaks of? When the proclamation of the gospel and the gathering of all nations is complete. That we do not know when. 
The second thing we see repeated over and over throughout the Old Testament is this word nations. 576 times in the Old Testament it is spoken of. Nations. Now, as the Bible talks about nations, it's not speaking of uh, geopolitical nation-states like Canada or Mexico or Nigeria or China or Uganda. Nations in the Bible are ethno-linguistic people groups. So in the Old Testament, we see, for example, Exodus 23, 23. The Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. These are people groups. So today, that would be like the Cherokees, the Navajos, the Fulani, the Teve, the Cambari. These are people groups that live sometimes in the same region together you can understand more about people groups and see what people groups are considered unreached in the world. Uh, A very wonderful resource I've mentioned before, joshuaproject.net. Total people groups in the world, I looked just yesterday, 16,701 people groups. That makes up the world's population, 6.82 billion people. Total unreached people groups. 6,890. That's 2.83 billion people. So if you and Rob are doing the math right now, that's 41.3% of the global population that is a part of an unreached people group. That's a lot. It's almost half the world has never heard the gospel. God's purpose has always been the redemption of the nations. This is not just a New Testament concept. The Old Testament is not only messianic, it is also about God's mission. The Old Testament is missional and messianic. It is missional because it is messianic. It's about the Messiah and therefore it's about the mission of God. What is the mission of God? To send the Messiah to redeem His people and to see the gospel proclaimed to all the nations. This is God's mission. This is what we are called to be and do. What is missions then? It is the nations delighting in God. Have you ever read through the Psalms and simply noted how many times the psalmists write about the nations being glad in God? Over and over and over again you read about the nations delighting in God, all the peoples praising God, every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation, and we know this will be complete because we see this language in the book of Revelation. As John looked in the great throne room, he saw from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation gathered worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. So missions is our being engaged in this task. Pursuing the advancement of the kingdom to all the people groups of the world is not one activity of several within the local church. All of the Old Testament points to the reality that this is it. All nations praising God is the purpose of God. And it is accomplished through His people. It is accomplished through the church. Yes, of course, as we gather as a church, we worship, we pursue holiness, we engage in discipleship, 
But none of this is ever detached from the reality that we are a sent people. Remember, Jesus has said, as the Father has sent me, I send you. We are sent. In the midst of that, Jesus prayed. Jesus performed miracles. He preached. But he, we never think of Jesus apart from the fact that he is sent from heaven to seek and save the lost. That's the goal of missions. That is the goal of God. That is what we are called to. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission mandate to go and make disciples of all the peoples of the world. These were the parting words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our mandate And it is as valid today as the promise that supports it. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And if that promise is valid today, it's not the end of the age, so it's valid. Then the mandate is also valid today. And the promise is valid because it's Good, Jesus said, to the end of the age. It is good until the end comes. So, until Jesus returns, the promise holds that He will be with us. And that promise is the basis of the mandate. And so, the mandate, the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. That holds today. Jesus is commanding us. Jesus is commanding Ephesus Church to go and make disciples of all nations. And we know that is not just to the disciples of his day, but to us also, because his promise is that he will be with us in doing that until the end of the age. So every Christian has a responsibility in missions that God's mission would be fulfilled that we bid the nations to repent and turn to God and bow at His throne. And it is very important to see this or else we will never fulfill what we are called to be as a local church and as a Christian people. So the question is, if this is our mission, if this is our task and our purpose, how do we get there as a local church? In other words, how can we at Ephesus Church be fruitful and zealous in proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth? Well, of course, it's important first that we would understand that that is our task. And in doing it, we would have complete dependence upon God. Getting from here, in here, to out there is a supernatural work of God. There's no 40-day plan or campaign that we can do. There's no program or step-by-step formula that we can implement. It is completely dependent upon the supernatural work of God. If you remember a few months back to our missions conference, we heard about 
cultivating a heart for the nations. How does that happen? Well, a heart for the nations is cultivated when and only when it's first cultivated as a heart for God himself. The fulfillment of the mission is dependent upon the sovereign, supernatural work of God. And to depend on Him, we must first know and long for and desire Him. And the sending and the going and the doing of missions requires that our hearts are like the Apostle Paul's. He understood in all of his missionary work that he had to depend fully and completely on the supernatural work of God. Remember, Paul asked the churches, pray for me that I would be bold in my task, in missions. So not only is Paul praying, but he's so dependent upon God. He is understanding so much of the reality that the work of missions is supernatural and not possible to do in his own effort. He is seeking others to pray for him as well. I think it's important that we evaluate ourselves in this. How often are we praying, Lord, give us boldness near and far. Give us boldness in gospel proclamation here. And out there. This was my constant prayer, to be very honest with you, in Nigeria. I was preaching to some 100, 100 missionaries, mainly missionaries, that are getting ready to go to some of the most dangerous places in the world to proclaim the gospel where it's never been mentioned before. Places like Somalia and Saudi Arabia and Egypt, Pakistan. I preached five times, several distinct times. I felt so weak and so needy of the power of the Holy Spirit. I was frightened to consider how it might go wrong with those I was preaching to. It is a frightful thing to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. I need boldness. I'll give you a few examples. The first time I preached while we were there was at a bush camp of former polygamists. Some of them still are polygamists, men with multiple wives. I preach 1 Corinthians 6. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you recall from that passage, the Apostle Paul speaks of those who are committing adultery. What does it mean to have an obedience to God when he calls you out of a life of polygamy to a life of single-mindedness and commitment to one man and one woman in marriage. It's a little frightening to proclaim that to a people who've never seen anyone like you before. And you're telling them perhaps that they are in sin and calling them to repentance. I preach to this group of missionaries telling them that they will face suffering and that God ordains it, and that some of them are appointed to die for the gospel. We preached very strongly against health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that is so prevalent in their culture. 
and took them to Galatians chapter 1. That if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to that which is in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says that they are to be anathema, accursed. In other words, to hell with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which many of them are entrenched in. We spend hours taking questions and hoping to provide answers about suffering and about dying well for the gospel and encouraging, uh, encouraging them to encounter radical Muslims boldly. And on and on and on these questions would come. And then all of this, every bit of this, reminds me so vividly, much more so, very honestly, than being here of our need to depend upon God to do as He has called us to do. It's not the easiest thing in the world to stand in front of men with families and tell them they're about to die. You are about to die. And God has ordained it that His gospel would be proclaimed and advanced. But a church that understands its task in global missions... A church that seeks to fulfill it with a complete dependence upon God will look a certain way and will be talked about and seen in a certain light. One example of this we have in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The church at Thessalonica is a great example to us of a faithful church engaged in the mission of God. The Apostle Paul, writing to them, tells them in verse 7, You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. They were an example. Why? How was the example set? Verses 8 and 9. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning, uh, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So the church at Thessalonica was a model for missionary work. Well, what fueled it? Let's back up to verse 3. What was the fuel driving their missionary work? Verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. A work of faith, a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope or perseverance. Their faith, their love, and their hope was the fuel that drove them to set the example for other believers in the missionary task. I think this helps us understand more that missionary zeal, being a people on mission, seeking to see the nations glad in Christ, is not separated from the core essence of who we are as Christians and in what Christ has accomplished in the gospel on our behalf. Mission is a form of of godliness. It is an outflow of true faith in Christ. It is an implication of being transformed by the gospel. How so? 
Well, I think the question we need to ask is, do we really understand what God overcame to make us Christians in the first place? Do you understand the depravity of your own heart? Do you understand how utterly wicked and deceitful your heart was prior to Christ transforming you? Do you understand the great work of the gospel? The reality that God the Father sent God the Son to die and take upon Himself the wrath that was due to you and to me and to be raised from the dead and to grant to us His righteous standing before the Father. I hope we never take that lightly. God did the greatest thing to overcome our hard and stony hearts, transforming us based upon the work of Christ dying in our place. And if we are gripped by this reality, if we truly understand this, if our faith and our hope is deeply rooted in the gospel, we, like the Apostle Paul, cannot stop saying and telling what we have seen and what we have heard. Missions is only accomplished by great faith with great hope. Because, missionary, because the missionary task, reaching all the people groups of the world, it looks impossible. 41% of the world is unreached. How will it be accomplished? How will we be a part of that? I think many people are kept from going or sending because they don't have the faith that God will actually do it. This is why it's laughable to me that those who affirm God's absolute sovereignty over all things to include salvation are often accused of not doing or encouraging missions. I don't know how you would do missions without that sure truth to rest your feet upon. How do we go to the unreached people groups of the world with an idea that we're supposed to convince them to do something. I'd much rather go with the fuel that it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, not the things that I say or convince someone of to do. It is God's sovereign work in salvation that fuels missions, that gives us a great desire to do it and to maintain and be sustained. Because we know that God will do what He will do and will redeem the lost according to His good grace and purposes. Charles Spurgeon said, A man says, I will do what I can. Any fool can do that. The man who believes attempts the impossible and he achieves it. Perhaps you know the story of Hudson Taylor. He was a British missionary to China in the 1800s when there were zero Christians in China. He spent 51 years on the mission field. He started the China Inland Mission that eventually brought over 800 missionaries into China. They founded 125 schools that directly resulted in 18,000 Christian conversions in his lifetime. It's incredible. Taylor 
Hudson Taylor was absolutely dependent upon God and he just believed God was going to do it. He just believed that he was going to proclaim the gospel faithfully and God was going to save people. He was devoted to reformed theology and he held firmly to God's sovereignty. He said there are three stages to the work of God. First, it's impossible. Second, it's difficult. And third, it's done. With man, the missionary task is impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. I can say with absolute certainty that 41% of the world that is currently unreached will be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all missions, whether it's evangelizing your neighbor, planting churches, giving your life to long-term foreign missions or engaging in frontier missions, all of it is a work of faith. It is a labor of love and it is driven by a biblical love for Christ and for sinners because we know what God has overcome in us to bring us to faith in Christ. This is in the heart of a Christian. And as we walk with Christ more and more, this grows and we have hope. Hope in the future glory that is to come. And that hope dominates us and it sends us through suffering in this present life. Paul looked at all of his sufferings in the midst of his missionary task and he says it's not even worth comparing to the future glory that awaits. So when faith and dependence upon God, when love for Christ and sinners grips us, our hope becomes that for the glory that is to come. And it's living and it's growing in us and we can set aside the world for mission. When someone is radically taken by the gospel of Christ is when they can say, let it all go. I am on mission with God. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. This is one who is gripped by the gospel of God. If you've ever read the journal of Jim Elliot, it seems that he was always focused on eternity. He wrote about his eternal hope all the time. And it seems like he already had one foot in heaven before he died at the age of 29, proclaiming the gospel. It was his life that was lived in the words of John Calvin with one foot off the ground. John Calvin talked about walking through life with one foot off the ground. In other words, we're always ready to go and be with Christ. And so whatever we do, we look at it and say, what's the worst they're going to do? Kill me? I'm going to go be with Jesus. And in the meantime, I'm going to proclaim the gospel boldly with hope and with joy. This All of this is the language and the heart and the pursuit of godliness. Worldliness does not produce missionary zeal. The more entrenched we are in the world, the less effective we are in the kingdom. Our prayer must be, God help us pursue godliness. So, 
how can this missionary zeal be grown in our hearts here and now? I honestly want to weep when I hear some Christians boast in the fact that they do not know or have any relationships with any non-Christians. It is so contrary to what we are called to be and do as Christians. That's called hiding your light under a bushel. Are you meeting non-Christians? How often do you have them in your home for intentional building of relationships and gospel-focused discussions? If we're not on mission enough to be engaging our community with the gospel, we have no hope of being much use anywhere else in the world. Life on mission here directly is directly related to mission everywhere else. I want to know the names and the stories of people in my community. Who serves me my food and my coffee? Who checks, who checks me out at the grocery store and at Walmart? I want to know these people. It's not the majority of my time or effort, but it's an intentional engagement with sinners so that we have opportunities to hear from them their struggles and the tragedies in their life and to present the gospel to them as the only means of joy and rest and peace and hope. Not every conversation you have with your coworkers, or not even the majority of your conversations is going to be about the gospel. But think about this. How often do you find yourself engaging intentionally in eternally focused conversation with those within your realm of influence that you know I really hope that those around you know that you're a believer. Not because of a t-shirt you wear or because of mugs you have on your desk, but because the overall trajectory of your life, how you interact and engage others is a testimony to your faith in Jesus Christ. And I bring all that up because we must get this right if we're going to be on mission with God to see the nations glad in Him. This is loving our neighbors. And again, this is at the heart of God's purpose for His church. We are equipped and then we are sent. Another way to grow our heart in missions is to develop a worldwide outlook. As a church, I hope it can be said of us that we're always talking about different cultures and nations and people groups. On Wednesday nights, we pray for missionaries. We pray for entire countries. We want to see more focus on the nations amongst us. Don't be boxed in by the American media. Find out what's going on in the rest of the world. For example... Do you know of the persecutions going on in Nigeria right now? Right where we were? Muslims are storming into churches and killing pastors and members of congregations by the hundreds. About a month ago now, they bombed the UN building in the capital. We need to know about these things so we can pray for believers. And for the advance of the gospel. What are you doing at home to advance God's agenda to the nations? A few helps. Operation World. Great big book that goes through every nation in the world and tells us of the lost peoples. Praying for 
ARBCA missionaries visiting and praying through joshuaproject.net, the lost people groups of the world, following up with Voice of the Martyrs and hearing of those who are being persecuted for the faith. For example, today in Operation World, we are called to pray for Pakistan, which is 0.6% evangelical. Ever since July, Voice of the Martyrs has been reporting on a Christian woman named Asiya Bibi. She's convicted of blasphemy and sentenced to death because she's a Christian in a Muslim nation. This is our sister in Christ. You may not know her, but she's your sister. You need to know what's going on in her life and be aware and pray and raise awareness and do what we can to see that the gospel flourishes as a result of her suffering. I really hope to see more of this growth here at Ephesus Church. I am excited to do more missions conferences and to talk about and pray for and hear from missionaries and to increase our understanding of world geography, knowing where places are and how to pray for them specifically. Did you know that in Europe, among the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims, there is only one of seven of them that have even a Christian acquaintance that they could ever ask questions of if they ever had one. We really need to be praying about this. Lastly, very quickly, our progress in in the missionary task is built on hearts like the Apostle Paul's. Acts chapter 20. Acts 20, 22. Through 24. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is self-denial for the sake of the gospel. Do you believe the gospel of Christ? Do you believe that the kingdom of God and the glory of God is more precious than the life that you live? Are we asking God if we need to consider missions at a greater level in our personal lives? Are we praying for the nations? Are we cultivating a heart for the nations? We have all received the task. I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is our task. We're all going to approach it a little bit differently by God's design. We may use different gifts and skills. We may use our business. We may use relationships we have. We may go to the mission field. Whatever it is, not being engaged in missions is not an option for Christians. So we need to pray. We need to know what's going on. We need to give. We need to send. And some of us need to go. 
And we're trying to go by starting with Nigeria, and we're going to see what God does when we're there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for involving us in the great task of global evangelization. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to partner with our brothers and sisters throughout the world to bring the gospel to the nations. Lord, you don't need us. We know that. But you have decided in your providence to use us. I pray, God, that we would have a deep conviction about that. We would have a great desire to be used, to be spent for the spread of the gospel, that the nations would be glad in Christ. Lord, help us to truly have a a heart's desire that means it when we say, Hallowed be your name. That your name would be hallowed on all the earth. Help us, Lord, to complete the task that you would be pleased to bring the day of glory that all would be restored, that your people would be fully and finally redeemed, and that we would rest in Christ. And until that day, bring the captives home, O Lord. Release the prisoners from the bondage of sin and grant them new life in Christ. And let us be a part of that. Stir that within us and raise up laborers Give us a desire to give, to serve, to provide, and to go. That you would be glorified and we would experience the true joy of laying aside our lives and giving ourselves over to suffering and even death that your gospel would be proclaimed to the nations. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.